Because again, in very succession, the show-like fashion, Mm -hmm. their father didn't really trust any of them to run the company. Welcome to the Powers That Be Daily, Puck's podcast focused on the intersection of Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley, and Hollywood, and the players who run it all. I'm Peter Hamby. It's Thursday, April 13th. Today, Dylan Byers joins me to talk about the real-world version of succession. That is, what will happen to Rupert Murdoch's media empire and his kids when he finally ascends to that boardroom in the sky, if ever. Dylan is here to separate fact from fiction in the rollicking drama that is News Corp. And later, Teddy Schleifer stops by to discuss Tim Scott's entry into the 2024 Republican primary and whether there's enough room for both him and Nikki Haley in the Silicon Valley fundraising scene. We'll discuss all that and more on today's episode of The Powers That Be. Are you tired of sleeping hotter than hell? I sure am. I sleep hot. There's something crucial about sleep that eludes us when we're too warm, too uncomfortable, and too caught in the web of our own thoughts to drift off. And while curiosity fuels our days, science tells us that cool sleep recharges our nights. That's where Chili Pad by Sleep Me comes in. Meet the bed cooling system that elevates the quality of human life through cool sleep. The Chili Pad Bed Cooling System is your new bedtime solution. I love it. It lets you customize your sleeping environment to your optimal temperature, ensuring you fall asleep, stay asleep, and wake up refreshed. Chili Pad works with your existing mattress. It's a water-based mattress topper that continuously controls your bed temperature from 55 to 115 degrees, allowing your body to rest and recover. This isn't just about escaping the heat, it's also about optimizing your sleep for better health, more energy, and improved physical and cognitive performance, which I obviously need hosting a podcast. Chili pads are designed for one or two sleepers, so if your sleep partner likes to sleep at a different temperature, or you only need it for one side of the bed, that's okay too, and we know that's crucial. Plus, you can schedule automated temperature changes to trigger deep sleep. But when I'm at home, Chili Pad solves those problems. So trust me on this one. Visit sleep.me slash powers to get your chili pad and save up to $315 with code powers. This offer is available exclusively for powers that be listeners and only for a limited time. Order it today with free shipping and try it out for 30 days. You can return it for free if you don't like it with their sleep trial. Visit www.sleep.com. Dot M-E slash powers, because you're not just investing in better sleep, you're creating a better life. Happy Thursday, everybody. I'm joined today by Dylan Byers to talk about succession, the real life version of succession. I think people think it's about the Murdochs and Rupert Murdoch and what's going to happen when he goes, if he ever goes, Dylan. Um, there's a lot of uh, stories flying around about the patriarch. Uh, you've got some reporting up now about Fox News and their defamation lawsuit they're dealing with from Dominion. Why haven't they settled? But I actually want to ask you about another media reporter's reporting. Are you going to be okay with that, Dylan? In this case, I am because <laughs> do you you know the Bloomberg Envy list? Like every every year, they publish this list of stories that they, they wish the reporters wish they had written. This falls in into that category. And so I am. I am not only willing, but I am. I am eager and enthusiastic to talk about about okay. this reporting. So this story is titled literally "Inside Rupert Murdoch's Success and Drama." It appears in Vanity Fair by Gabe Sherman, who is 
sourced up in News Corp world and has been for a long time. Dylan, what? <laughs> I mean, the lead here is a succession style scene. It talks about how Rupert Murdoch pulls up to his granddaughter's wedding in Oxfordshire in a black Range Rover <laughs> at this beautiful village. And he emerges looking like Tom Wolfe in a white suit, red suede <laughs> shoes and a red tie. Then he nearly collapsed. And then it goes on from there. Uh, why are you so envious of the story? What's going on in here? It jumped out of you. Well, here, here's what I'll say at tying all of these things together. I think one of the reasons that uh, media reporters, media insiders, and I would say reporters generally love the show Succession uh, is not just because it is loosely based on on the Murdochs or all about the media, but because it succeeds in doing something that I, I think all reporters really strive for. And indeed, it's the conceit of the title of my private email in the room, which is there is a story that is playing out in press releases and in the sort of public conventional wisdom and on Twitter about every company we cover, about every politician we cover, about everything we cover. And there's actually a much more compelling and rich and often dramatic story taking place behind the scenes that in many cases sort of totally undermines the public narrative. And I think Succession has done a masterful job, the show of tapping into the way that business actually gets done in the media. Obviously, there's some dramatic flourishes mm -hmm. uh, and some poetic license, but one of the reasons it resonates with so many of us, I think, is because we see the real story, the story that we are always trying to capture, the story beyond the headlines, the stories that we try to get to here at Puck. I'm envious of this Gabe Sherman story in Vanity Fair because he has succeeded in getting into at least uh, some very sort of significant moments and anecdotes in Murdoch world. And indeed, in many cases, they are nearly as compelling as what happens on the HBO show itself. And, you know, some of the details here are so rich. I was particularly drawn to this a moment when Rupert's fourth wife, Jerry Hall, shows up at their estate in Oxfordshire and is waiting to meet him and receives an email informing her that uh, he's decided that they're going to get a divorce and the New York lawyers will be in touch. He's had a great time, but as he says, he has much to do. And she notices security cameras at the estate that are feeding footage back to Fox headquarters and she calls her former partner Mick Jagger to send a security man to come and dismantle the cameras. Uh, and then eventually, months later, she sort of puts together a sort of voodoo doll of Rupert Murdoch and burns him on a grill. I mean, these are just, this is like, <laughs> this is, these are the compelling stories that you have to be pretty well sourced up in. And Fox Corp Murdoch world is a very hard world to break into. I, I say that firsthand as a reporter. I, I hope one day to, to get deeper inside of it than I'm able to now. But Gabe Sherman uh, has dedicated himself to that project for a long time, and he deserves kudos for what is a very, very compelling cover story here. Yeah, and Gabe wrote a biography a few years back about Roger Ailes and, and is really in, in deep in that world. Two things sort of jumped out at me in this profile. One was I feel like there's been this changing perception of Rupert's politics over the last few years where previously 
and this is sort of mirrors succession in the show. Previously, he just sort of seemed like a pragmatist, a business guy, throwing red meat to the viewers, to the audiences, no matter how crazy it was. But he was still a little more pragmatic, maybe even moderate. This uh, story sort of suggests that he's been radicalized by his own echo chamber, which is one reason that he's been dating and recently called off his engagement to this woman, Anne Leslie Smith, who was basically like a right wing radio host, you know, like, so it seems like he's a little bit more of a true believer on the right wing conservative stuff than he used to be. That comes, that jumped out at me. And then two on the literal topic of succession, it sounds like James and Lachlan, the two brothers aren't even talking anymore. Lachlan is still at Fox. James is horrified by Fox and what they broadcast. Is that true? I mean, and and if it is true, is it, does it just make natural sense that Lachlan will take over uh, once Rupert Murdoch heads to the uh, big screen in the sky? Right. Uh, well, look, first of all, on your first point about Rupert's own politics, I see it a little bit differently. I think that if you look at his uh, statements in the filings, the text messages that he uh-huh. sent around the election, and you even look at his decision to sort of call it off with uh, his potentially fifth wife, at least, at least according to the sources that that Gabe Sherman was talking to, you know, she sort of came in with this like Tucker Carlson is a messenger from God stuff, and he effectively was like, "Whoa, whoa, you're." I mean, that's a little, it's a little too much for me. <laughs> I think that Rupert, through and through, has been a businessman, a uh-huh. brazenly, callously, unapologetic businessman, willing to feed the people what he believed they wanted and and indeed what they were telling him he wanted all the way up to the point now where of course they've he's sort of crossed over this line where he is very much it seems at the mercy of a, an audience that he helped to radicalize uh, and there is a bit of a frankenstein component here in sort of building up this fevered audience of conservatives who sort of resented progressives, resented the direction of the country, resented a more diverse and global America. And now now they are sort of running away with control of the narrative and, and, and of the influence, I think. And, and I think we saw that play out in around the election. The second question about succession, which is really what the gist of this of Gabe's piece is about, what happens when Rupert dies, because he will die, though he is, you know, like many, many a media executive, (laughs) many a media mogul believes he is invincible. Uh, He loves to note that his grandmother lived to 100 or mother lived to 103. Uh, He's 92. So maybe he's got another decade or so. But whatever the case, this is inevitable for all of us. When that moment does come, his four oldest children effectively hold equal voting stakes in the in, in the fate of the empire. Hmm. Right now, Lachlan is by Rupert's side. He is the chosen one, the golden boy, and has Rupert's full faith and confidence. And by all available evidence, his politics are, if anything, to the right of Rupert's. Mm-hmm. So it would seem like Lachlan is the obvious successor. But there is a sort of fever dream among the anti-Fox News wing of Murdoch world that in very succession the show like fashion you could have the empire be handed down to Lachlan and then you could have the other three children sort of band together and say no we're done we we don't want to have anything to do with this 
asset anymore, which we view as toxic, and we are either going to reform it entirely and make it, if not liberal or centrist, at least more center-right and at least more responsible, mm-hmm. or we're going to get rid of it entirely and we'll sell it off to a private equity firm and be done with it. I don't know if that's realistic. I don't know if that's going to happen. I, um, You know, certainly there's a divide between Lachlan and James. James has much more liberal politics. He feels sort of estranged from his father and his brother. And you can see a world in which, because if the show Succession has taught us anything, it's that the family can never really leave the family business, that maybe he does try to get together with his two sisters and sort of take the company back. I think what I, if we can just pull back from all of that for a minute, I think what's really notable about all of this is what is the empire over which they might be fighting. For a time, it was massive. It was 21st Century Fox and the in the film studios and all of that, all of which has since been sold to Disney because, again, in very succession, the show-like fashion, mm-hmm. their father didn't really trust any of them to run the company. And he saw his most strategic exit as selling the company to Disney. He certainly got the better end of that deal, I think, than Disney did. And he left his children with a meaningful business in terms of Fox News and Fox Sports and Fox Broadcasting and, of course, the Wall Street Journal and Dow Jones and all of that, but not nearly the empire that they sort of grew up in. And so it is a diminished influence. And because it largely centers around media, it it is sort of most important in terms of the political influence. And I think the warring politics of Lachlan and James are going to be a significant factor in the fate of the company in the event of Rupert's death some 10, 15, 20 years from now. 20 years from now on a private jet to Sweden (laughs) to finish the deal with Matson. All right, Dylan, thank you so much, everyone. Uh, Dylan mentioned his newsletter in the room. He's got some reporting on why Fox hasn't settled this Dominion lawsuit, even though (laughs) Rupert has settled so many lawsuits over the years. Um, and everyone go read Gabe Sherman's piece for real. It's, it's really good. Credit where credit is due. Dylan, thanks so much, man. Thank you, Peter. When we come back, Teddy Schleifer is here to talk about the latest Republican to flirt with a 2024 campaign, South Carolina Senator Tim Scott. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you profit with NetSuite. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash powers that be, netsuite.com slash powers that be. That's netsuite.com slash powers that be. 
Welcome back, everybody. I'm here with Teddy Schleifer, Puck's resident chronicler of money and power. Uh, Teddy, how is springtime in your new hometown of Washington, D.C.? It's beautiful. I'm wearing a t-shirt. I just have decided as I moved here to not care at all about D.C. dress code, doing it my way. <laughs> That's good. No, no khakis. No. Well, speaking of Washington, yesterday your new neighbor, Tim Scott, launched his presidential exploratory committee. You've been following him, sort of testing these waters for a while. He's been out in Silicon Valley. He's got some friends out there. Obviously, an insane pile of cash behind him, courtesy of Larry Ellison. Are you surprised at all that, that he's um, appears to be jumping into the race? You know, I think the the donor part of this for, for Tim Scott is, is a huge reason why he's running. You know, he is the only U.S. senator, current U.S. senator, who appears to be running. You know, I think he'll benefit a lot from kind of the McConnell fundraising universe uh, because of that. You mentioned Larry Ellison, who, you know, we can talk about a little bit more, but, you know, Ellison has been very supportive of, of Scott running for president. Specifically, he put, you know, $35 million into Scott's super PAC over the last couple of years um, for this express purpose. He wants to, you know, bet on Tim Scott's presidential bid. And, you know, I anticipate the Scott super PAC will raise maybe another $35 million from Larry Ellison. And so Scott is very much, I don't want to say like a donor candidate, but he is a candidate who I think would not be in this race if he did not have such strong fundraising support. And that's because this is, this is a campaign uh, or Republican primary battle where I could actually imagine relatively few candidates actually having major donor support. I mean, DeSantis is going to have more money than he'll, he'll ever need. Trump will have more money than he'll ever need. I think you know there's going to be a lot of Republican third-tier candidates that are going to be pretty washed up financially, like Asa Hutcherson, you know, or, or someone like that, who's, you know, on paper, you know, he's a credible candidate. He's a governor. He's just like Tim Scott. He's a credible candidate. But Scott has this fundraising base that I think makes him, you know, maybe we're splitting hairs here, but I think it makes him a second tier candidate in a way that would not be true if it were not for his support for major donors, as opposed to a third tier candidate, I, I should say, like I'm distinguishing between tier two and tier three here. Yeah, fair enough. I mean, to, to level set, obviously, Donald Trump has a commanding lead in the early primary polls. He's had that lead for a long time. Ron DeSantis has encroached. A lot of people have thought this is a, this is really a two-man race. More recently, Ron DeSantis's polling has dropped off. But there is this prevailing theory among donors and political observers that one or another of these second-tier candidates could come in if Trump ceases to be viable for some reason, if Trump and DeSantis sort of clobber each other into oblivion, that this third lane will emerge I don't know if I really see it, but can you give me the sort of Larry Ellison, Silicon Valley donor pitch for Tim Scott? Like, how, how do they sort of see this race? Sure. So Ellison kind of does a lot of his politics on his own. He does not really have a traditional kind of Sherpa figure. He's very influenced by kind of pro-Israel Republicans, kind of national security hawks. Lindsey Graham is very close with Larry Ellison. Uh, Lindsey, of course, is the other senator from South Carolina, Safra Katz, Oracle's uh, CEO, who is not necessarily a, a Trump supporter, but, you know, loves everything Trump did on Israel. And Scott is, is kind of a more traditional foreign policy hawk, though I wouldn't say foreign policy is the issue set that Scott has kind of made his name name on. I think Ellison's a pretty emotional donor. You know, he kind of really fed, fell head over heels from Marco Rubio in 2016. You know, he liked Romney a lot. He's He's a guy who gives to people who he feels, you know, represent in a romantic way, like the best of America. So I don't necessarily think that like 
Ellison or, or frankly, Scott are sitting there thinking like, you know, I'm going to be president of the United States. I think they think that this is a chance to bet on who you think should be president of the United States. And it's a beautiful thing in, in American campaign finance that you have the right to put $50 million behind a long shot. And, if, you know, it's your God-given right. So I don't necessarily personally see, you know, the path of Tim Scott becoming president. But I think he and his donors who are behind him see – you know, maybe the chance to, to burnish his credentials. You know, there's been talk about Scott potentially being a VP choice. Who knows if that's true? But it's it's a brand building exercise, I guess, to some extent. And, and you know, the fact that there are major donors behind him, I think, makes this more credible than, again, Asa Hutcherson or someone else who has absolutely no chance. I mean, I think Scott's got a couple percentage points at this point. You know, I think the, the concern for Republicans has got to be that if there are too many of these kind of donor-fueled candidates that go too deep into the process, right, you know, that could create a pretty ugly scenario, a la 2016, where anti-Trump Republicans can't consolidate around a single candidate. Like, what if Larry Ellison is still supporting Tim Scott, you know, let's say past South Carolina? You could see a scenario where Scott wants to stay in until that state or maybe something like that. So I think if there are five or six Tim Scotts and five or six Larry Ellisons, that could be trouble for sort of the anti-Trump Republican majority or large minority. But at this point, you know, Ellison probably feels that he wants Tim Scott to be president. The race is early. Who knows what can happen? It's my God-given right to do this. He's emotional about Scott. Scott spent a lot of time with Ellison on his Hawaiian island over the last two or three years. The other thing is it also appears, based on some early reporting, that the Scott super PAC, backed by Ellison, is going to play like a very outsized role in, in the campaign. A trend that's happened over the last couple of cycles Super PACs aren't just doing ads anymore. Super PACs really are taking on lots of like blocking and tackling um, for traditional things that were done by traditional campaign headquarters. I think we're going to see that across lots of the Super PACs this cycle, where outside groups are going to be in charge of like getting rallies to campaign events and you know doing you know traditional uh, campaign like field work, right? Stuff like that. That a decade ago, you know, Super PACs were just the scary people narrating television ads, but increasingly more and more traditional campaign tasks are being offloaded to these donor-run groups. So Ellison can play a huge role in Scott's like day-to-day activities indirectly. Yeah, Teddy, that's such a great point. And as you sort of hinted, even if Tim Scott doesn't continue to run for president, or, or even if he never makes his run official, if he has this exploratory committee and then he decides to back away, he has all this money that he can deploy throughout the race in a way that will make him a kingmaker. It will absolutely raise his national profile, whether or not he enters the race, whether or not he stays in for a long time. This is going to make him a name. It's going to get him on Fox News. It's going to increase his future speaker fees. There is really only upside for Tim Scott. But to go back a bit and address the other point you made about sort of splintering this third lane, it is mm-hmm. really interesting that that Scott's closest comparison in that lane is Nikki Haley, who is another sort of non-white, non-crazy, moderate-ish Republican, also from South Carolina. She actually or- originally appointed him to the Senate in 2012 when there was a vacancy. So they have a, a sort of relationship and similar politics as well. It's hard for me to imagine what the like total electoral addressable market is for this particular brand hmm. of politics among primary voters who are already so far to the right of the median general election voter. Like that, this seems like kind of wishful thinking. Yeah, sure. I mean, look, the, the last time there was a Republican primary in 2016, you know, Scott and Haley both endorsed Marco Rubio, and there was this brand of kind of positive, aspirational, poverty-focused 
um, not populist, but kind of traditional, almost Reagan Reagan-esque kind of Republicanism. That <laughs> you know, Rubio, what did he win any delegates in twenty sixteen? I mean, yes, he won some delegates, but clearly in twenty sixteen, this brand of Republicanism did not have enough of an appeal to make Marco Rubio the Republican nominee. And you got to think that 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 part of the pie, as you put it, is smaller versus uh, it was eight years ago. So you know, the the, the Haley and and Scott constituencies. You know, I would bet are going to be smaller than the Rubio constituencies. And, of course, they're going to be split across multiple people. I, I really do not see Tim Scott becoming the Republican nominee or Nikki Haley becoming the Republican nominee. So, and, you know, you can look at what the Rubio constituency was. And obviously, they're different candidates. And there's a whole host of different reasons why these campaigns are different than the 2016 campaigns. But if you start from the Rubio baseline, that, that tells you it's at least a starting point for understanding the fundamentals of kind of whether this brand of Republicanism has any appeal. Teddy, before I let you go, you reported earlier this week that venture capitalist Chamath Palihapitiya, he's the the SPAC impresario who's now a a podcast star, among other things, he's Mm -hmm. one of the big names out West. They're talking about bankrolling Nikki Haley. You had some new reporting on that. Obviously, there's plenty of money to go around for all these different candidates, but I'm also curious if you've noticed would-be donors pulling back at all, sort of holding their fire after Trump's arrest and, and, and indictment and all that. There's been speculation that that has sort of frozen the field in various ways, that donors are getting cold feet, especially for DeSantis. Do you think that Chamath is, is sort of um, an exception here? Or is there a broader appeal for Nikki Haley in Silicon Valley than, um, than maybe we think? Yeah. So, so Haley's donor base, I would say, is going to come more from Wall Street than this from, from tech. You know, I think Haley will appeal to Lots of South Asian donors, which are you know a, a big part of frankly of the Silicon Valley money universe. You know, Chamatha Sri Lankan, um, and you know has talked openly about cool what it would be for a South Asian woman to become president of the United States. He is a an interesting donor for for a number of reasons. I mean, he you know as recently as 2020, he was giving you know a quarter million bucks to elect Joe Biden president of the United States, and now all of 18 months later, he's saying on his podcast, or two years later, he's saying on his podcast that. You know, he would support Nikki Haley over Joe Biden. <laughs> and, you know, in a lot of ways, you know, he speaks to kind of the, the evolution of, you know, Silicon Valley elites politically, where they're more focused these days on, on owning the libs and sort of being anti, anti-woke anti Dems than they are about all the things that Chamath theoretically holds dear. Like, you know, he's talked about in his podcast why he thinks that Nikki Haley is, is a candidate who cares about climate change, right? Or, or um, is a candidate who cares about the poor uh, issues that, you know, typically you don't see kind of them Republicans being associated with kind of leadership on, on those issues, to say the least. But Shamath, I think, is someone who's going to become a bigger player. I mean, I report my story that he's talking with the Haley campaign about hosting a big fundraiser, which suggests to me that this is not just like podcast star talks about candidate on a podcast. You know, Chamath is going to put in some muscle here. I'm sure he could raise her you know, a couple hundred K from his network so, or donate a couple hundred K to a Nikki Haley super PAC that is also currently existing. So more to come. Yeah, definitely. We'll, we'll see how all those dynamics play out. Obviously, regardless of how long Nikki Haley stays in the race, I don't think she's going to be the, the presidential nominee, but who knows what will happen. Ditto Tim Scott. We'll see how long he stays in the race if he actually does enter formally beyond this exploratory phase. But no matter what, the Silicon Valley money is going to be a major, major factor in the Republican primary race. So, Teddy, thanks as always for stopping by. You bet. 
Thanks so much for listening to another episode of The Powers That Be. As a reminder, The Powers That Be is the official podcast of Puck. We'd like to thank Ben Landy, Liz Goff, and Alex Bigler for their editorial and production guidance. If you like what you hear, please share with a friend. It really helps us keep delivering the inside scoop that only Puck can offer. Follow us on Twitter at Puck News. I'm Peter Hamby. See you tomorrow. This has been a presentation of Cadence 13 Studios. Please listen, rate, review, and follow all episodes wherever you get your podcasts. The Powers That Be Daily is executive produced by John Kelly, co-founder of Puck, Chris Corcoran, chief content officer and founding partner of Cadence 13, and produced by Ben Landy, executive editor at Puck. Puck.